Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see all of you today, knowing what tomorrow holds. We now occupy a construction zone, uh, if you did not notice, on the way in. And by the way, the supplies list is not for you. I believe it's for the students. So we're not expecting you to bring pencil and paper and a three and a half by five note cards with you to worship on Sundays. Just so you know, uh, welcome to church planning. <laughs> um, we have five ministry strategies as a church that really form the core of what we believe we're supposed to be actively pursuing. And so for the next, you know, for this week and the next two weeks, for five weeks, right at the end of summer, we're going to be taking a look at each of these ministry strategies one by one and talking about them. Now, what we've said, uh, and if you look at the, at the front of your worship folder, you'll see at the bottom there, we've printed our mission statement, which is to make Jesus's invisible kingdom visible in Winter Haven and the world. And that this will be this will require us to be a praying community of Jesus' disciples who embody the truth of the gospel and who share or spread the gospel in both word and deed. One people sharing life together, a holy people telling the story of salvation, people on mission serving their neighbors. Now, look at that first phrase there, if you would. We exist. Our mission is to make Jesus's invisible kingdom visible in Winter Haven in the world. And that's a very clear statement of what we believe is happening and what Jesus is calling us to that really, in, in a sense, the church has got it wrong for a long time because the church has talked about Christianity in terms of Jesus coming to save us so that we can leave this world and go to heaven. And so the movement of so much of Christianity is how do I get out of this place and how do I get into that place? How do I get out of the world and get into heaven? But if you read the Bible, I believe faithfully and with an open mind, you'll see that the Bible is much more concerned the Bible's not so much concerned about how we leave here and get to heaven. The Bible's concerned about how heaven is going to come down to earth. And in fact, in Revelation 21, at the end of the ages, you see that the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven and coming to the earth. And we believe that is a way of understanding what Jesus is doing in the Gospels when he is traveling and teaching and, and casting out demons and healing people. The kingdom of God is coming into the world. Heaven is coming down into the earth. And that gives us a very clear focus of what we should be as a people. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about that then the church then is the servant of God's kingdom, that we're a people who must be on mission, that there's work, that we must work to take the gospel to the people who need it the most in tangible ways, feeding the hungry and caring for the poor and things like that. That if that's true, then the church is not just the, the, the servant of God's kingdom, but it's the community of God's kingdom that we should be one people a people who live in community, that there's a kind of oneness, a mutual self-giving love that displays the reality of the kingdom of Jesus in our midst, in our community groups we talked about last week. And it's difficult because the world we live in is overrun by consumerism. But this morning, what we want to see is that the church is not just the community of the kingdom and the servant of the kingdom, but the church is the messenger of the kingdom. And we're a holy people that we have a story to tell. We have a story to tell about what God is doing in our world, and we must work faithfully to proclaim the coming of God's kingdom in Jesus and the salvation that is ours uh, because of his work on our behalf. And so if you look at those three things, you'll see community, mission, worship, community, mission, worship, community. You know, that's kind of the, the, the triad that we're going after. And what I want to say to you is, is what we believe we have to do as a church is to try to keep those three things in balance, because if you look around, what you'll see is churches typically will take one of those 
and they'll become they'll, they'll get really good or it'll become really really important to be good at one of those and then they neglect the other two so you'll get churches who are very passionate about being in community with one another you know and they 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 do fell they have you know, they eat together a lot and have lots of potluck dinners and do lots of fellowship oriented activities but there's kind of a neglect of mission and there's a neglect of being a holy people or you get you know people who are very much about being in you know in the world uh, and being out there and engaging in the culture, but somehow, um, you know, there's a neglect of the call to obedience and holiness uh, that is ours. And so we've got to keep, we want to try to keep those three things in tension with one another. And this morning, we're going to talk about what it means that we're called to be a holy people and to have a story to tell. Now, if you look at Numbers 15 again, which was your call to worship, anybody else besides me think that's just a really weird passage? I mean, tassels, I mean, really? I mean, is that, you know, what, what is that? And if you see there, what, what Moses is instructing the people in is he's, there is, a, there is a, a very clear expectation of obedience. They were to sew tassels on their garments and even put a little cord of blue in there to re, to, so that they could see them. And when they see them, to remember because of the expectation that the people of God would would remember the commandments of the Lord and do them and not follow after their own heart and their own eyes, but to do the commands of God. To be, and he goes on to say, that you would be a holy people to your God. That just as God is holy, the church is commanded to be the expression of God's holiness in its life of holiness before watching world. But if you'll notice there at the very end of that little that little passage there, there's not only a very clear expectation of obedience, but the, the call to obedience is rooted in the salvation of the Lord from Egypt. Do you see what God says? Be holy as I am holy, for I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And so he appeals to the salvation history of, of the people as he's calling them to holiness. And that's going to become really important for us this morning. So. If you have your Bible and you'd like to turn there, we're going to be looking at First, Chron- First Chronicles 16, which is a rather long passage. And then just just looking at a few verses from the New Testament in John chapter four, as we talk about what it means for us to be a holy people and how that gives us a story that we are then to tell, that we need to be a storytelling people. And incidentally, how all this comes, you know, comes together is, is the way the church has always historically chosen to tell the story is through its worship. So we're going to be talking about that this morning. But let's look at this passage in First Chronicles. Pray for me. There are a lot of really, really hard names to say here. Okay? So if I just kind of do the banana, watermelon, watermelon, watermelon kind of thing, stick with me. Okay? First Chronicles 16. And they brought the ark of God... They brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins. Here we go. And then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. You might have heard of him because he wrote a lot of the Psalms. Second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaniah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres. 
Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaniah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And then on that day, David first appointed a thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And here is the song. Here's the call to worship, the song of thanksgiving that they sang. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens splendor. And majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. shall never be moved. And now he calls all of creation to join in. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Look at thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For steadfast love endures forever. And then from John chapter 4, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman and talking to her about worship, Jesus said to the woman, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that that which you do not know. We worship that what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit. And in truth, this is God's word. And so there are three things this morning that I want you to see as we think about what it means that we're to be a holy people. And because we're a holy people, we have a story to tell of God's salvation and making us a holy people. And how is it that the church has historically chosen to tell that story? It's through its corporate worship. So three things this morning from these passages about worship as we think about this ministry strategy that we have. The first is the goal. What's the goal of worship? And we're going to see that the goal of worship is storytelling. And secondly, what what the need for storytelling in worship? And then thirdly, the mode of worship at Redeemer. So the goal of worship, the need for storytelling in worship, and then the mode of worship, or what worship feels like and looks like in our particular expression of it at this church. Okay, so those three things. Let's begin here and just see the goal of worship is that worship is storytelling, okay? Let me set First Chronicles in context for you just a bit, okay? Um, if you look there, it's a long passage. It's, it's the story of the ark of God coming into the city of God to dwell among the people of God. And for Israel, and especially King David, who was the greatest, probably the, the most Israelites considered the greatest king Israel ever saw, the ark had become a symbol of God's power 
and his presence among his people and his promises to be with his people to bless them. So if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay, you know kind of what we're talking about here. The Ark of God, it was that thing where the, the, the ghosts came out of it and everybody's face melted at the end. Remember that part? Right? You with me? Okay. Just for reference, there you go. It was a chest. It was about four feet by two feet by two feet that was overlaid with gold and contained a number of things that were very significant from Israel's history. It contained the two tablets that Moses brought down from Sinai that, that were written on, on them were written the Ten Commandments. Uh, there was a jar of manna to remind them of when God sent manna every day for 40 years in the wilderness to feed them. And there was also, we just read this past week, the staff of Aaron, which budded. All these things were put into the ark to be kept. There were little rings on each corner and the priests would put poles through them to carry them as they journeyed to carry the ark as they journeyed from place to place. And so it was considered this ark was considered the throne of God. It was, again, symbolic of his presence among his people. So, for example, when Israel would go out to make war against their enemies, the ark of God would always go before them into battle. The priests would carry the ark into battle before God's people as a symbol of God going out before them against their enemies or during their wilderness wanderings, when they would go from place to place, they would they would tear down camp and and take off and then they would camp again. And always the ark was always put right in the middle of the camp. And there was a tent. And you see that there in verse one, there was a tent or the Old Testament sometimes calls it a tabernacle that would that 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 would house the ark. And it would be right in the middle of the camp again to symbolize God's presence in the midst of his people. Now, if you follow the story through the Old Testament in First Samuel and Second Samuel, and then again in Kings and Chronicles, uh, the ark, what happens is, is the ark is eventually lost to the Philistines, Israel's arch enemies. And it really was more than just a military defeat for Israel. It was symbolic of God forsaking them as his people, of, of him turning himself, turning you know, away from them because of their sin. Um, and, and many, many years later, after David became king, he set about to bring the ark, which had been lost, devastating to the people, to bring the ark back into the city of God to be with the people of God. And this scene in First Chronicles 16 is the description of the ark after so many years of being lost to their enemies, coming back into the city of Jerusalem. And it's symbolic of, of so much more, again, of God coming again to be with his people and to bless them and save them. And what's interesting is you read here that David is so overjoyed and overwhelmed that we're told that he begins, and, and we're told elsewhere, he begins to dance and leap and rejoice before the ark as it comes into Jerusalem. And so just a note for free, uh, a poll really quick this morning. How many of you have ever been a part of a worship service where you were sore the next day? Anybody? Wow, I'm all alone. Marta, are you with me? If you've never been a part of a worship service where you've been sore the next day because of worship, you've not lived the full life. David is dancing and leaping and celebrating because the ark is coming again to be with his people. So here's what we're told he does here. Look here with me. He finds some musicians. He breaks out the harps and the lyres and the trumpets and the cymbals. OK, translation, guitars and drums. That's the truth. Guitars and drums. And David would probably say electric guitars. We put that in there, right? Electric guitars and drums. He puts together a choir of singers and he calls all of Israel to worship. And so what we see, what I want you to see here is in this long 
prayer of thanksgiving, this call to worship, there's a series of verbs uh, that, that are used to call the people of Israel to worship. And what, what it does is these words, these verbs help us discover the, the goal of, of their worship and the goal of our worship. So let's just walk through really quick, verse by verse, and I want you to see these verbs. So follow me beginning in verse 8, okay? He says, the, the singers sing, give thanks to the Lord, verse 8. Again in verse 8, make known his deeds. Verse 9, sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Verse 10, glory in his holy name. Seek the Lord. Verse 11, seek the Lord. You know, seek his presence. Rejoice, we're told in verse 10. In verse 12, remember his wondrous works, his miracles and his judgments. And then skipping down verse 23, again, sing to the Lord. Tell of salvation. Declare his glory and his marvelous works. Okay, so you see the goal what we're learning here, what we see in those words is that the goal of worship is something objective and communal. I want to say that again, that the goal of worship as we find it here and as we kind of flesh it out in our own life is something objective and communal. It's something that is outside of the individual. It's not subjective. In other words, it, the goal is not an, not emotional or experiential. Now, let me say, of course, Worship is full of emotion, but the goal is not a subjective emotional experience. The goal is to remember, to give thanks, to tell, to declare, to recite. You see, the goal is storytelling. We gather together on Sunday mornings for worship because of what God has done to save us through Jesus Christ. We're a holy people. Every part of our lives has reference to what God has done in Jesus to redeem us. And so we gather for worship because of what he's done to save us. And we gather for worship to retell the story of what he's done and to reenter into the reality of it and to celebrate it. So when the church gathers to worship, it gathers to retell and to reenact the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his victory over the powers of darkness and his place of power and authority over the universe. And what I'm trying to say, and some of parents, you'll, I think, appreciate this. What, I, what I'm trying to say is that worship trains us in a worldview. Worship helps us understand the world in a particular way. It's a culture-forming event. Now, the purpose of worship in the church is to form the church into a holy people, a redeemed people, a people with a salvation story. Worship, then, is a culture-forming event. The church's identity, its basic understanding of itself and its mission are powerfully formed as we set aside the first day of the week to gather together to retell the story and we tell it week after week and year after year and the rhythm of that, the pattern of meeting week after week and year after year and the rhythm of remembering and celebrating form convictions and values and habits that are crucial to any kind of life lived towards the holiness and the obedience that God's calling us to. Now, let me give you just one example from the Old Testament, Okay. One example of how this fleshed itself out in the life of the people of Israel. Uh, in Exodus 12, the Lord, when God is bringing the nation of Israel up out of Egypt, he's, they're, they're slaves in Egypt, and he's coming, and he's going to rescue them and bring them to the land that he's promised. And as he's bringing them up out of Egypt, he gives them elaborate instructions as a nation uh, as to how to celebrate in the years to come the event of the, of the Passover and the exodus out of Egypt. And what, what he tells, it's, it's fascinating. You should read it. Exodus chapter 12. They were to meticulously reenact the Passover event with exact detail, okay? 
He told them, every year you're going to eat unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now, let me just say, that's not exactly gourmet. Okay? And they were commanded, they were commanded to, in every detail, reenact the night where the Lord came and rescued them from Egypt so that they could remember. And then my favorite part, because I'm a dad of four, is they were commanded, they were told that there's going to be a point in the feast where you're celebrating this together, where your children are going to ask, why do we do this? And Moses and Moses says, you're going to tell them that the Lord came and rescued us from Egypt. In other words, the whole thing was to, to bring the people to, to a point where they celebrated together and they could look at their children and they could say, this is who you are. This is why we live the way we do. This is why we do things the way we do. This is our story. We were slaves in Egypt and God came to rescue us. Now, we don't celebrate Passover or, other, or the other feasts of Israel um, there are Christians that do, by the way, but there are a couple of things that we can try to leverage to accomplish this. And I just want to mention two of them to you and then move on. And you'll see them there in your worship folder as applications. One of the ways that we try to kind of get at some of this. And the first is in what we call our worship liturgy. And the, the word liturgy refers to the intentional structure of our worship. And if you've never been to a church that follows a liturgy before, it might feel strange. You might be suspicious. You know, it might feel rote or mechanical. And I just like to say that we have a greater concern than spontaneity that I think is just as important. And that is and that is that we are trying in the way we structure our worship to form a particular worldview and a particular way of thinking about the world and our lives that pushes us more and more and more toward the holiness and the obedience that God calls us to in his scripture. So our categories, do you see them there? We have a pretty loose liturgy here. And our categories basically fall into this fourfold pattern of gathering, telling, feasting, and sending. And so every every week, this is what we're trying to accomplish in our worship together. We're trying to gather one another and calling one another to worship to remind us that we are we are called out of the world to pay attention to God. We tell the story. We we tell the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ through confession and repentance and assurance of pardon to remind ourselves that man does not live by bread alone, but that by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Once a month, we feast together and celebrate the gospel together as a community who are called to go and do this in remembrance of Jesus. And then at the very end, there's a very intentional sending in the benediction to remind you that you're being sent from this place to go and live in the world, a life of mission and obedience to Jesus who sent you there. You see, we're trying to train ourselves in a particular way of living that is that is consonant with what the Bible calls us to in the obedience and the holiness that it calls us to. And so you'll see that in our liturgy. But the second thing that I just put down there, and we've not figured this out very well, but no, just know it's coming, and that is that there is a tool at our disposal to really help us tell this story uh, in a powerful way, and that is the church calendar. And I don't know if you're familiar with the church calendar at all. There are resources you can look at online, but there has been for many, many years a an intentional um, an intentional attempt on the part of the church to, on a yearly basis, retell the story of Jesus through the seasons of the church calendar, beginning in Advent, as we long and we await for a Messiah to come, and then the celebration of Christmas, and leading into the Easter season where we celebrate Jesus' life and his death and his burial and, and his resurrection from the dead, and then all the way to the, to the time that we're in now, which is the time of Pentecost, where we celebrate the, the coming of the Spirit to empower the church for the mission that God, that God has called us to. And so you see this cyclical nature 
of this intentional retelling of the story of salvation, even in the, the services and the years and the colors and the smells and the rituals and all of the things that the church does to remind itself of its story. You see, the goal of worship is that, the, is that there would be storytelling. Okay, worship trains us in a worldview as we sing and declare and tell and remember. And I can't stress how vitally important this is because we live in a culture that is without this kind of controlling story. If you look there at point number two in your outline, a storyless culture, and one of the basic tenets of postmodernism is that it rejects any notion of what sociologists call, and it's a big word, but a meta-narrative, which is an overarching story or a controlling story that brings focus and purpose and commonality and meaning to life. And the result is, we were talking about this outside this morning, absolute relativism, a culture of people, especially young people, with no sense of self, with no definition, no identity, and no, no, no love or no, no even sense of there being authority. We are a culture largely that denies any objective reality that exists outside the individual. You see, if there's no story larger than my personal story, if there's no truth that's bigger than me, then I'm the truth. And so what you'll get is people saying, well, that's great for you to believe that, but I believe what feels right for me and just utter subjectivity and relativism. And it results in absolute chaos. And I want to say that's what we're sending our kids out into when they leave our homes and go off to college. The recent studies say Christian parents be aware that eight out of 10 students who are raised in Christian homes leave the church when they go to college. 80%. And mainly it's because they find storylines that are more compelling than the one they were raised in, and that's the shame. You see, we live in a storyless culture, and the result is rampant individualism, materialism, selfishness, apathy, and immorality. There's a great story uh, back in the Old Testament in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And in Judges chapter 2, it's one of the most, it's one of the saddest things we'll read in the Bible, but in Judges 2, verse 10, we're told that there arose a generation in Israel who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And then it goes on in the next sentence to say, and the people of Israel did what was right, what was right in their own eyes and evil in the sight of the Lord. A generation arose that did not know him or the things that he had done. You see, day to day obedience and holiness are rooted in a much larger issue of worldview. Questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? You know, um, what am I supposed to do with my life? Every heart needs to find answers to these questions. We all need to feel like there's something that's bigger than, than us that we can be a part of. It's fascinating. Researchers have found that, that kids have a greater emotional need to know that their parents love one another than their need to know that their parents love them. A child has a greater emotional need to know that their parents love one another than, than, that, than, than that they know that they love them because kids have an emotional need to know that there's something outside of them that they can be a part of that's stable. There's, that there's a marriage that they get to come under. Uh, so there's this deep emotional need and it comes out, it absolutely comes out everywhere in our culture. I gotta tell you a story, really, cause it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, I was doing a retreat a couple of years ago and I was trying to make this point to some ladies who are on this retreat, and I told them, I'm going to tell you a story, and I want you to tell me whose story it is that I'm telling you, okay? So here's how I did. I said, it's the story of a child whose birth was foretold by prophets 
a child who would undo evil and bring peace to his people, the story of a hero who would battle a frightening foe and whose pleasure was cruelty and death and destruction, a hero who in love gave his life to save his friends, whose love was more powerful than death and who through his own death and resurrection would conquer evil and lead his people in triumph to win together a future of hope and blessing. Now, whose story is that? Jesus? It's the story of Harry Potter. And I told the women in that, and one of the women, one sweet, sweet older woman said, it is not. I said, yes, ma'am, it is. She stole our story. And she's gotten rich. Because she's telling it better than we are. I mean, that that lady who wrote those books, she stole our story. That's our story. That's our hero. And yet, if you look in the culture, all over the culture, in every great story that's being told, the power, the reason why we go to the movie theaters to watch the movies and we read the books, the power behind all those stories is they're stealing our story. And I don't know who said it, but I remember reading it. I think it's powerful. Somebody said, he who tells the best story wins. And that's really true for our kids. If you think of all the great stories about ordinary people who become heroes, it always happens because they become aware of some great story that's unfolding around them. The people who become great are always those who realize that there's something greater going on in the world than what's going on with them. So the goal of our worship is storytelling. And this is greatly needed because of the autonomy and the relativism and the, and the miscommunication about the story that's going on in our culture. And I don't know J.K. Rawlings. I don't know. You know, I heard at the beginnings of the Harry Potter series that she was evil and she was trying to coax Christian kids into believing in witchcraft and all that kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, she tells the story powerfully. Because it's so it's imprinted upon the human heart. And the holiness that is commanded of us comes out of being a redeemed people that the salvation of God that is ours in Jesus lays claim to every aspect of our lives. And the issue then is how captivated we are by what God has done and how deeply it has embedded itself in our DNA and begun to influence even the smallest decisions we make. And that's where worship is so powerful. Week after week, year after year, as it reintroduces us into God's reality and reminds us of our place in his story. But let's get practical as we come to a close um, about a couple of things. If you see... The third point there, worship in spirit and truth. Um, we have to begin here. David says, worship God, remember his wondrous works, his miracles, tell of his salvation. He says, in other words, there, there are particular events that we're remembering and celebrating for Israel. You know, for Israel, it would have been um, the exodus from Egypt, God's miracles in the wilderness as he brought them into the promised land, all the victories that he won for them against their enemies. But for us. On this side of the cross, the heart of the content of our worship is just this. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of the salvation that came to us through Jesus, his coming into the world, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven and his sending the spirit from heaven to come into our hearts. And we want to be gospel centered in our worship. And let me so let me just run through the gospel for you and then apply this and how this works. And hopefully you see this fleshed out in the way we do this together. The gospel teaches us this. And this is what we say over and over again. That salvation is by grace. And that means that it's been given to us apart from anything we've done to earn it. Or to deserve it. The gospel teaches us two things at the same time. That we are loved 
and that we're sinners, that we're loved and that we're sinners. We're sinners. We're born children of wrath who have no claim on God's love or approval and no hope except in his sovereign mercy. But we're loved. We're justified. Jesus has come into the world to die in our place as the penalty for our sins and to work a righteousness that is ours by faith. And this is going to make the feel of worship a little different. OK, it's going to make it's going to it's going to make a very true characterization of gospel worship. Um, because and I want you to see how this works. And I'm not slamming churches. I'm just trying to give you categories where you can understand what we're trying to do. OK. On one side, there are churches um, that could be characterized uh, on the side of legalism that in the, and in these churches, God is mainly stern. God is harsh, uh, but but and demanding, uh, but not loving. And the Christians in these churches believe that they're saved by the good works that they've done, by living morally according to God's righteous standards and not by grace. And so most of them, there's there's no real joy. There's no deep emotion because salvation is something they've achieved, they've achieved and they've earned by their own efforts. And here's what happens. Is God, that's kind of weird to see my wife walking around holding a baby. That's not mine. Sorry. But, right. I have a two-year-old. That's yeah. I just had to remind myself. Sorry, lost my train of thought. Here's what happens: is God is usually conceived of as being transcendent and holy, but to such a degree that such a degree that He feels distant and unapproachable. So the worship in these churches tends to begin to feel stuffy and formal. You know, it's like we revert to King James English in our prayers. You know what I'm talking about? You know. Um, it's usually expected that people will dress in their Sunday best. There's not a lot of emotional experience or spontaneity or joy. And it becomes it can be easily become empty traditionalism or formalism. OK, so there's reverence without joy, which is not really reverence. But on the other side are churches that fall into the category of what what we would call it's another big theological term, antinomian or license. Uh, and you'll turn on the TV. You can see a lot of them. And there, and the way I say it is, God, in these churches, God is just a big, ooey-gooey puffball of love in the sky that just accepts and loves everyone. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life, but there's no need for repentance and sacrifice. And Christians in these churches believe they're saved, not because of grace. They don't need grace. They're saved because God accepts everyone. He has to accept them, no matter, you know, no matter what. And so there's no deep joy or emotion there either. And God is conceived of as being close and intimate and loving, but to such a degree that honestly it just gets a little sappy. Worship is casual and spontaneous and energetic, but sometimes lacks substance and can turn into emotionalism. So over here, there's joy without reverence, which is not really deep, genuine joy. But see, gospel worship is completely different. Because it's both reverent and full of spontaneous joy because the gospel of Jesus teaches us that the true God is far more holy. Okay, you ready? The true God is far more holy than the moralistic God because he demands an obedience of us that we cannot ever produce ourselves. And at the same time, he's far more loving than the relativistic God who can just accept anybody because of the price that he was willing to pay to save us. So do you see how this works? The gospel teaches us that God is holy and demands absolute obedience and that we are sinners who have no hope except that he would save us. We have no hope of meeting his demands in and of ourselves. And what that does is that produces a deep reverence in our worship and a humility and appropriate fear even that brings 
a weightiness to our time together on Sunday mornings. And so it's entirely appropriate that we confess our sins and sing songs of repentance and meditate silently. But at the same time, the gospel also teaches us that God is love and sent his son into the world to meet the demands of his holiness and to die in our place to satisfy his justice. And that produces a kind of joy that possessed King David when he danced and leapt before the ark as it came into Jerusalem. Both those things at the same time. Both of them, deep reverence, radical joy and spontaneity and emotional expression. And so the mode of gospel worship in our church, if I could just make two points of application and then we're done. Number one, it will be rooted in biblical truth. Gospel worship is rooted in biblical truth. Jesus tells us in John chapter 4 that true worshipers worship the Father in truth. Worship has to provide channels for your intellect and imagination to apprehend the truth of the gospel. And so that's why we sing hymns. That's why we do we, we recite creeds and confessions of faith. We'll probably do some responsive readings. We'll saturate the service with the scripture because there needs to be a substance. But secondly, it's not only rooted in biblical truth, but gospel worship that is true worship will be, will be filled with vital affections. And Jesus said that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit. Worship has to provide opportunities for your affections to be kindled and respond to the beauty of the truth of the gospel. Now, on I, I, it's not nice to swear in church, so I won't do it, but I am telling you the truth. I have been on a field in Sherman, Texas with Jonathan Winfrey as he jumped up and down and sang and ran around like a crazy person worshiping God. I about freaked out. I was freaking out more at what was going on here than I was what was going on over here. Jonathan shouting and screaming and jumping and dancing. It was awesome. So he's capable of it. Pray for him. That's really what we want to see. We want to see people passionately engaged in the truth of the gospel as it is being expressed in deep joy and reverence and emotional response to the story that is being told in our worship. That's what we long. That's what, te- that's what we long to look out from this, this stage and see going on out there. John Piper, just to, just to finish, John Piper has a quote that is great that kind of centers us on what we're talking about. He says, if God's reality is displayed to us in his word, and we do not then feel in our heart any grief or longing or hope or fear or awe or joy or gratitude or confidence, then we may dutifully be sing- we may dutifully sing and pray and recite and gesture as much as we like, but it will not be real worship. The real duty of worship is not the outward duty to say or to do the liturgy. It is the inward duty, the command. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice. That's the duty. So let's pray. And ask God to come and begin to help us. Uh, delight more and more in him. Uh, Jesus we confess our fascination. With so many other things. Other than the wonder of what you have done. To bring us salvation. And so we, we repent this morning. Um, we cannot commend what we do not cherish. And the truth is, is we cherish um, the college football scoreboard and our own agendas far more than we cherish all that you have done to save us. And so I pray together, I pray with my friends this morning that you would come and you would captivate our hearts 
by the love that is shown to us in the gospel of Jesus. That it would produce a deep reverence in us, an awe that you would love a worm like me like that. One who is a child of wrath, who has no claim upon your love, that you would love me like that. Would it produce in me and in my friends a deep awe and reverence at the wonder of your salvation and also producing us a deep joy that cannot be contained. That expresses itself in passionate, heartfelt worship, not just in this room for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, but every day of our lives. And may the glory in in the story of our salvation turn us into a people that can become the people of holiness and obedience that you call us to, not following our own hearts, but eager to do your commands. And may that be to your glory in our city and our world. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite, um, one of my favorite scenes in the Gospels is when Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem on his way to the cross. He's being hailed, Hosanna, uh, King of Israel. And his, his disciples and the people who are gathered there are making such a fuss that some of the rather uh, religious people begin to say, can you please make them be quiet? And Jesus says, no, I can't, because if they don't sing, the rocks will cry out. I mean, you know, that that in First Chronicles, you know, it goes on, the seas will exult, the fields, you know, in other words, <laughs> this, you know, the, even creation can't contain itself. And so how could we? And so I love to say, I think you've probably heard me say all the time, if you believe the good news in your heart, please notify your face. Right? Let that stuff come out of there uh, as we really celebrate a couple couple of things. Uh, the first is please be in prayer for Covenant uh, Presbyterian Church because in the next hour or so they will be meeting and I, I'm sure that's going to be a difficult pray for pray for Ivan Lambert uh, and their session as they try to lead their congregation uh, in the contemplation of just the sadness of saying you know 40 years of ministry is coming to an end um, and uh, and and trying to transfer their property to us. It's a big day for our church, so pray for, pray for those things. But secondly. We believe, uh, according to our mission statement, that to see God's invisible kingdom visible in Winter Haven in the world will require us to be a praying community of Jesus' disciples. And so every fourth Sunday of the month, we set aside an hour in the evenings to pray. And that's tonight. Jonathan, we're going to meet at the offices at 5 o'clock. We will be meeting at the Redeemer Church offices. You can get a map on the website. Please come and pray with us tonight at 5. Um, because that's the time that we set aside to really try to go after what it means for us to be a people who pray that God would come and, and, and do great things in our city. So as you go, um, the promise of the gospel that as you go, uh, go reverently, go rejoicing, knowing that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you may be a sinner, but sinners are loved. Uh, and that's the promise of the benediction, that as you go, he goes with you to bless and be with you. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.